Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Uh, we got a really, really interesting guest today, and I've just recently uh, gotten to know Dr. Ron, and you've heard of Dr. Strange. Well, he's not Dr. Strange, he's Dr. Change. And what I love about the work that he's doing, he's currently a professor at Cal State LA, but he's also the CIO at Trader, Trader Joe's. And he's written a book, and his new book, Lead for a Change, explains why the goal of change management is not happiness, but meeting and exceeding clear expectations. Now, before you kind of say, oh, this is another one of those leadership guys going to get there and tell me about why I got to change. No, no, Dr. Ron has done a ton of research in this area, and he's actually helped transform a lot of individual cultures in the way they think how to perform while transforming. And he's got a lot of great insights for us. So whether you're in an organization today, these things don't just apply to businesses and companies. You know that. I bring on, I bring on guests onto the show who have philosophies that apply to our personal lives and our families just as much as they apply to our business lives. And, uh, and Dr. Ron's one of those guys, and he's going to be great at helping us think through how to apply these, his learnings, his research, and not just thinking through the concepts, but the application of them in our personal and professional lives. Ron, welcome to the Driving Change Podcast. It's an honor to have you on, my friend. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. And thanks for that introduction. That was very, very well put. I appreciate that. I will give you the caveat that I often tell my students the stuff that I teach in the classroom doesn't always work well at home, depending on who's the boss, you know, so we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll navigate that carefully. Well, you, you know, we, we do get into some of that organizational, we, we a top down, a bottom, you know, I know you love to get into the right pronoun, are we a we or a me, like those things, you know, we we'll have to figure that stuff out as we go along. Where, where does it apply in the home? And where does it not apply in the home? I can tell you just as, you know, for those who are listening, you're looking for a little bit of marital advice. Uh, if you are a male and you are married, you are not the boss. We're not going to do that episode today, but we, we might get into that some point down the road. So it's exciting to have you on the show. And I know you've got so much to teach us and the book has so much rich information in it. We'll get into some of that as we go along. Uh, but as you know, I gave you the warning in the pre-show, every guest starts off uh, with their origin story. So tell us a little bit about uh, the early days of Ron and kind of who had that influence or maybe not had that influence on your life. What was your early life like that led you to the point where you found your purpose in helping others understand how to, how to lead change? That's a great question, man. Thank you for that. So um, I, I grew up in Chicago and uh, went to school there. I wasn't particularly good in, uh, in, in academics. And I now know probably because I had a diagnosed learning disability, but that's a, an undiagnosed learning disability, but that's a different issue. When I was a Senior in high school, my parents moved to the West Coast, and um, uh, that was a big disruptor for me. Obviously, I left a bunch of good friends, came out to a place where I didn't know anybody, and um, my my dad struggled a little bit with his work, and so that started to set an example for what it looks like when things don't go well. Uh, ironically, I went to community college because uh, I didn't have any friends and nothing else to do, and I did good, you know. So it was clear that when I focused, I actually could 
could sort of learn something and 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 do well in an academic setting. Uh, it, it became clear to me uh, after that move that I needed to get to work and sort of take care of myself. And so I went to work full time um, at at the Gap in the early days, and I got into their management training program. And it was pretty disciplined at the time. It was a cool brand, and I started to feel like I could. Uh, do something and be successful. I did did really well. I was one of the youngest managers to uh, take responsibility for managing a store it, it, in that day. Uh, loved it, loved the company, but knew that I needed to um, get back to my education. So I looked for a school that was uh, accredited where I could finish my uh, studies at night while I worked full time. And I found National University. It was an emerging sort of private university, but was accredited. Uh, started to study business, and they um, had an IT major that uh, they wanted to get going. This was the late 70s, so tech was just coming on with mainframes and stuff like that. IBM came and gave us a uh, an aptitude test to all the students. I passed by one point and said, I guess I'll be an IT major, you know? Um, finishing school, staying with the gap, I got out and said, hey, I uh, just studied tech. I'd like to get into your new technology organization, maybe be an analyst or a programmer. And they said, um, we only hire people with experience. And so that was a bit of a shocker because I thought, hey, I got the ops experience. I now understand a little bit about tech. Let me merge those two things together. And um, that didn't work out. So I needed to find a company where I could get trained. And uh, at the time, Ross Perot was running electronic data systems. He had a very structured training program. He only hired people that didn't know anything. And uh, I got an offer and uh, went to work for Electronic Data Systems in their systems engineering development program and went through three phases of, of learning, learning a business, studying the tech, and then applying that tech in a, in a business context. I worked in the healthcare uh, arena. And that's kind of the beginnings of a business-oriented you know, IT career. Uh, I eventually got I felt constrained by the rules and the discipline and the policies at EDS and went on to look for uh, different organizations, different opportunities, have spent my whole career in supply chain and retail management, uh, IT management in in the U.S. and abroad, large companies, small companies. And each time I've had the opportunity to, to dig in, I found myself doing innovative projects but also making tons and tons of mistakes and trying to learn from them. And really that collection of learning has sort of turned into my practice today and the things that I'm trying to share with people through the book. All right. Well, there's a lot there. So I've, I've got questions. <laughs> All right. Go I've ahead. Got, I've got questions. Uh, the first thing, though, know, you conjured up in my mind. I love the comment. I love the vulnerability of the comment of a like, Ross Pro's company, EDS. He was, they were hiring people who didn't know anything. So that's how I got a job there. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so I, then I had this, you conjured up this image of you with a wooden stick and a, and a whiteboard going, okay, see right there, right there. That, that, that's a mainframe. That's a mainframe. First thing you're going to have to learn, Ronnie, Ronnie, that's a mainframe. And I, I can just see Ross teaching you. But no. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know who Ross Perot was, go do a little bit of research. There's probably still some YouTube videos out there on, on him. He was an amazing guy. And, you know, yeah, not knowing anything's probably a little glib, but he wanted to train people in the Ross Perot way of doing things. And he instilled a tremendous amount of pride in the people who worked in that organization. It, 
culture was important, how you presented to the customer, how you represented yourself, what you wore was restricted, you know? We could wear wingtip shoes, suits, and two-color shirts, you know? So all of that, uh, in retrospect, ended up being a really, really strong foundation for me. Yeah, there's we could get into the the evolution of cultural constraints. That might even be an entire, you know, it could be a theory we could devise out of that. But so one of my questions I had for you was, you know, you've become an expert in, in helping organizations thinking through how to lead for change. You teach a lot of your, a lot of your courses at the, at the university on that. You've been helping Trader Joe's as CIO think through that a lot. Do you ever stop and think how your life's experiences subconsciously planted some of that in you? So that I was thinking about the move that your family made from Chicago to California. That's a big change. And as, as you know, the neuroscience behind change is we don't like it, especially when we're not the ones initiating it. And when change is forced upon us, it creates a lot of different, different effects on our, on our brain, short-term and long-term. Do you think that some of that had, had subconsciously planted in you this, this tension of how to help people process through different changes, whether it be personally or professionally? Was there something there? Absolutely. And I think as I look back on it and have some vocabulary now, I would say persistence and resilience, you know, and finding yourself in a difficult situation. Uh, I've learned to ask myself, what is the lesson I can be learning here? And how can I navigate through the change and then decide what, what comes next? And so I would say I see opportunity in difficulty rather than seeing difficulty in opportunity. I mean, there are people who get so freaked out and, you know, the brain will go into flight or fight and your blood goes to your arms and legs. And so you can't think clearly, you can't deal with your feelings. And so not getting there, but understanding that when you're uncomfortable, that is the opportunity to learn. And and if you're paying attention and you can tolerate that discomfort, you will expand your learning zone by moving one step at a time through whatever it is that has you stuck. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I, the audience is used to me. We we use the phrase self-preservation orientation. Like humans just wake up every morning in self-preservation orientation. We still scan our environment for threats. And uh, the work Kahneman and Traversky did, and with Kahneman looking at you know humans will pursue change at twice the urgency to avoid a loss as they will to pursue a gain. And that's all wired into that, right? That self-preservation. And the great irony for me with change and change management, that's why I love having like experts like you on. The great irony is the ability to do what you just said is completely in opposition to our biology. When we're, when we're feeling like we're in a, a season or a state of change, our brain goes into that fight or flight mode, self-preservation activates, and we're really not open to new ideas because of our the entire neurochemistry that's happening and the wiring. So to train yourself to recognize in the moment consciously that your subconscious is telling you not to be open to new ideas and to train yourself on how to look for opportunity in the midst of stress that your body and brain is telling you might be negative, that's a skill, right? You can learn to do that. Is that right? I believe so, yeah. And I would say what you're describing is a bit of emotional intelligence and the idea that feelings come first from the kind of tip of your spinal cord up into your brain. And if you can recognize those feelings as signals, anger, frustration, you know, a disappointment, uh, and then decide what, how to respond rather than how you're going to react, uh, then that is the skill I, I think that really allows people to sort of 
navigate through these difficult conversations. I mean, two things I learned. One is that um, the woolly mammoth who threatened us and made us run back in the day, those feelings and all of that stuff that drove fight or flight, sometimes it's the smallest thing like your boss is upset with you or you made a mistake. You have the same level of intensity that we might have had, you know, 5,000 years ago. And understanding that and being able to calm that intensity down and then figure out how you're going to respond versus react is is so important. And when these strong feelings dictate our behavior, I mean, look at Will Smith and the slap, right? That guy got angry. He didn't take a beat to think about how he was going to respond. He let that emotion drive whatever went on there. And I doubt it was all related to one line from a comedian. There's probably other stuff that, you know, was, was driving that. So at any rate, I agree wholeheartedly that, that we can learn this and, 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 and practice and, and therefore grow as a result of difficult circumstances rather than get shut down and, and, and feel stifled. And um, I get excited about that today. It wasn't so exciting back then. I bet. I bet. I, and I, I love what you said there. I hadn't really thought about it in that, in those terms, two things you said that really resonated with me was one, putting, putting words, putting language, right. Vocabulary to some of these things, identifying them. The idea of, of having a thoughtful response versus an instinctive reaction in these moments. Wow. I mean, that's some marriage counseling advice right there. Right? <laughs> um, that applies across our life. I'll give you one other thing that I've, that I've learned that I, I think is interesting. And that is this idea that feelings have no time. So associated with them. So I mentioned that I probably had an undiagnosed learning disability. I felt a lot of shame when I was in school. I didn't do well at math and 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 other subjects. And, you know, the teachers were always telling my parents in parent-teacher conference, you know, Ronnie's lazy, he doesn't try hard enough. It, math is easy, you know, they're math teachers. Why would they think otherwise? Um, and, and so, you know, that was a difficult time. So now when somebody might tell me, you don't understand, Okay, the reaction of my eight-year-old from that time and the shame that I felt could come big time for me as, as an adult, right? When what the person's telling me is no big deal, you know, it's okay not to understand. I get that as an adult and I could figure it out or get people to help me. But because these feelings and these emotions get stuck in our body and might not have a time frame associated with them, I've learned to try to discern why is this reaction so intense given this circumstance? It doesn't make sense. And being able to sort of pay attention to that, take that deep breath, and then try to be responsive rather than reactive is such an important leadership skill. Whether you're a subordinate or a follower or a leader, uh, I, I really think that this is a very important, you know, sort of topic. And I appreciate it coming up, you know. Wow, that may be a, that's a drop the mic moment here on the Driving Change podcast. and. Uh, again, I, I love that concept. If we could all start to think about most of us are, are going to have, we, we know we always react to things emotionally in general, but we'll have an emotional reaction to nearly everything. It's the intensity of the emotion that we feel in the reaction that might be tied to a thread that goes all the way back to your four-year-old self. Yep. And you don't know. And because it's so rooted into your subconscious, it's going to then influence your response if you're not aware. And to measure the intensity of your reaction emotionally and be able to not respond until you've measured it, understood it a little bit, and then thoughtfully recognize that, it, hey, you know what, this isn't, this isn't my identity. I'm not, a, I'm not a dumb kid in the sixth grade who didn't know how to do calculus. I, I'm not that kid. 
And shame on my teachers forever making me feel that. Having that ability to do that consciously is so hard, isn't it? Because we have so many filing cabinet drawers full of those almost traumatic emotional reactions from our early days all the way up through. Some people even have them today, right? Everything we experience creates some memory. Um, I think that's powerful, what you said. That's, that's really, really important. I appreciate that. Yeah, and, it's, um, and the paradox is the stronger the feeling, the more you want to react, right? You get angry. How many, we know so many people, they get angry, they scream. They get angry, they swing. They get angry, they run away, you know? And if it's not appropriate for what the stimulus is or the trigger, if you will, then the people that you're interacting with look at you and like, what's wrong with you, Beth? You know, like, why? So anyway, yes, I, I, I think that it's a... It's, it's an important, you know, leadership topic. And it's not that, you know, we don't talk about it in the context of how to be a good leader, but really I believe you got to start to understand yourself first and then you can, uh, you know, foster trust and, 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 and get others to sort of rally around your cause. Yeah. You, you carry those life experiences with you into all of the positions that you have. And I love the idea that, I mean, you really, there's a thin line between coaching and, and counseling, right? And, and part of it is, to your point on emotional intelligence, the self-awareness of being able to coach and counsel yourself and recognizing these things and really recognizing them in a way that how do they show up in my leadership style? How, how does my life's experiences positively and negatively? I can tell you lots of stories of how my papa on the farm taught me how to communicate through storytelling and what I learned from him that are very positive. But I also have a little bit of trauma in the early days of the way my Vietnam vet Marine father handled discipline. And so they're both in there and they both will manifest themselves in my leadership style if I'm not recognizing how to suppress one and accentuate the other, right? hundred percent. And, you know, my dad was a guy, his generation was uh, role-based power. You will respect me because I am your father. Right. And, um, you know, I've kind of taken that to a different place because I want to earn respect. I mean, obviously I'm, well, I'm a parent. I have kids. There are times when I'm going to be super directive, but there are also times when I want them to understand I'm human. I make mistakes. I get to apologize when I think maybe I didn't handle that well. And I think, as a leader or in any position of power, when you can acknowledge after reflection, nobody's perfect. Hey, I wish I would have handled that differently. I'm sorry about that. And, you know, um, next time I'm going to try to be better. I believe that that also uh, builds trust with people and, and gets them to understand, you know, we're all human, we're all doing the best we can, and it's it's never perfect. Yeah, I love it. It's good. Well, let's get into the book a little bit and talk a little bit about what you... first. First question I like to ask authors is, is why, why this book and why now? What, besides you just, it was your expertise and you wanted to write it. Like, what was it about the concepts you had discovered and learned that you felt were really, really game-changing compared to all the other myriad of leadership books out there? Because there are some really unique things in your book that I already discovered. So what, why the book and why now? So as I mentioned, so kind of where I left off on my career journey, I, you know, after I left electronic data systems, I got into, I spent 10 years at a grocery company, met some folks and uh, who were working in grocery international, got an opportunity to move to Hong Kong and work uh, in, in a very different cultural dynamic than I had worked in before. And I took my Western ideas and they were, they failed miserably, you know, so I, I found myself on that move to California, except it was Hong Kong and it was a different context, but I had a, a, a lot of things to learn. And, um, you know, 
from there did a very big transformation at the duty-free shops. After 9-11, we needed to rally a team to cut expenses significantly. And uh, we ended up doing some global onsite and offshore work. We moved 7 million lines of code offshore in, in a 90-day period to try to cut expense and help save that business. And you know, each step along the way, I had experts advising me and helping me get through these difficult situations. And in almost every case, uh, I built a relationship that um, I, I've worked with these people over a long period of time, and there were always nuggets or processes or ideas that really helped me and my teams uh, to to deliver sort of things that we didn't think were possible. And so now that I've been doing this long enough, I have this collection of ideas and um, I thought it might be good. And I've been asked to try to put them down so that people could maybe have a bit of a field manual or a resource where they could dip in as required to these ingredients to create a recipe for leadership and and driving change that that might be applicable in their situation. So um, having gone through uh, my, my uh, this is a little bit out, out of sequence. So that's that's the business part of things. Um, when I landed at Trader Joe's, I stopped traveling. I traveled a couple hundred thousand miles a year. The last company before TJ's, um, I was hired by somebody who bought 50 businesses in 69 countries. And my job was to create one enterprise IT organization for the whole. And uh, that was a multi-year effort. We went through uh, a, a lot of very, very interesting learnings, which are reflected in the book. Uh, the CEO who hired me hired his replacement. That guy brought in a leadership team. I ended up leaving, joined TJ's, stopped traveling, um, met the president of Cal State LA at a fundraiser uh, and asked if there's an opportunity for me to teach because I really enjoy it. He introduced me to the dean of the College of Business and Economics. The dean hired me because I worked for TJ's, not because I knew anything. I keep finding myself with these. Yeah, there you go. There's a, there's a theme here, Ron. I don't know anything if people just hire me, you know? Brilliant. Hey, by the way, for all you kids out there with resumes, that's not the approach we recommend. Exactly. Just say you don't know anything and they'll hire you. Uh, at, at any rate, so I, I I got to put together a leadership course and um, it was very, very well received. Ended up uh, wanting to study more about how to create curriculum and teaching strategies for the next generation of leaders. Worked on a doctorate to get that education. And it was really the sort of convergence of the academic learning and the practical work that led me to say, I think I have the confidence now to try to put this down in a way that people might might find it useful. And I, I tell people, I, I want my drop of water in the ocean of knowledge of leadership change. And if somebody finds my drop, then I'm happy, you know? Right, right, right. Well, it's probably, it definitely could be more than a drop. So let's, let's unpack a few of the concepts in here. I found it interesting that you, you tackled happiness right out of the gate. Uh, give, give us some insight into what, what was that? All, what, why, I, again, I've never had a leadership book where addressing happiness as not being the goal was the way you opened the book essentially. Yeah. So to tell us a little bit about that. Well, funnily enough, I wanted to title the book Happiness is Not the Goal because I feel so strongly about it. And my publisher was like, no, you can't do that. So um, listen, um, when we're driving projects and we have multiple stakeholders, we want people to be happy and to like us and to feel good about what we're doing. And the nature of the change programs that I found myself leading, um, I learned from experience happiness was not possible for everyone. So if you take the duty-free uh, opportunity. After 9-11, our customers stopped traveling. 
sales dropped in half. We needed to cut expenses in order to save the business. As you can imagine, doing that had an impact on jobs. There were people who were laid off. They were not happy. There were people who stayed who didn't get the services that they were used to and had to do way more than they otherwise were doing over the last several years. They were unhappy. Customers didn't always have what they wanted. You know, we saved the business. The CFO was quite happy. And ultimately, people found their way towards a happier state. But that was one of the big aha moments for me that the best I can do is set clear and unequivocal expectations and hold people accountable for meeting or exceeding them, whether or not it makes them happy. And I found that to be a powerful device. It's not personal. I still like you. You know, we, we can get along and have a beer, but we have work to do. It's going to be difficult. And at the end of the day, you have to decide, are you in or are you out? And, and a, a concept that I would add to that is I, Open, I'm open to diverse points of view and different ways of accomplishing the goal to meet that expectation. And I, I, I welcome um, disagreement. But once a decision is made, I expect commitment. And that comes from the heart. Agreement comes from the mind. And so you can disagree and commit. You can agree and commit. But if you can't get yourself to one of those spots, then I've learned that I have to help you find someplace else else to be in a constructive way. And you might not be happy about that, but eventually I do believe people find, you know, a place where they can, they can be as happy as, as possible. So that's a very long-winded answer to, you just can't make everybody happy all the time. And as a change agent, you shouldn't try. It's, it, it's very frustrating. So let me clarify one thing you just said. So you said agreement comes from the head, but commitment comes from the heart. I believe that to be true. I believe that, yes. I love that. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that that way before. So you can get agreement in the head, but to commit to change, it's, it's a heart thing. And the concept of happiness, I, I think what what people sometimes misunderstand, you know, we, we were raised in, a, it's America, right? It's America, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we have all of these employees who have that kind of deep-seated, oh, that's I'm supposed to be happy. I want to do a job that makes me happy. Um, and I think what you're saying is, is that, you know, ha- happiness is a, is a fleeting state of mind based on sometimes transient circumstances. And you're never going to be always happy all the time. And as a business, it, it change and evolves, it's going to come up against headwinds and we're going to have to lean in and it may not feel comfortable. And you might interpret that as I'm not happy. And what we're saying is, is to be a great leader, happiness really, we just got to take it off the table. We don't, that's not the focus. The focal point isn't to be happy. It's to accomplish objectives and pursue purpose and, and, and find a way for people to do that that does align with their personal vision, right? That they feel like they're fulfilled in their work. And if they don't ultimately feel that way, then they might need to feel unfulfilled somewhere else. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, I, I, think, I think that that's fair. But I, I would say more specifically for me is that happiness is an outcome of a job well done. Like you could still feel happy at the end of a very arduous journey where you've learned something and you've done the best you can to meet or exceed expectations. But I've also found that tying my own personal, I'll speak for myself, tying my happiness into one relationship, one job, one sport, one philanthropic endeavor is, is not giving happiness its due and sort of finding a recipe of diverse things that you can be part of and experience that ultimately leads to that 
that sense of happiness that is unique to each of us and to your point may change over time is is an important thing you know but if you if an individual says i got to get my happiness from work then to your point you got to define it clearly pick your boss and find a place where where you can get that i mean it's possible you know yeah and i think there's just some you know as you said earlier words matter right vocabulary what what does happiness really mean to you and helping people understand that and that you know we we'll celebrate wins and we'll create a culture where it's 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 fun to work and we all have our aligned objectives and we're going to celebrate when we meet those objectives. But, you know, day to day, there's going to be headwinds and there's going to be times when it may not feel comfortable. You might mistake that for I'm not happy, but we're going to, we're going to have happiness woven into the joy of celebrating wins, right? It's not like you're just, you know, this is the, the Dr. Dr. Grinch, Dr. Seuss is the Grinch who stole uh, culture's happiness kind of book. That's not what you're talking about at all. It's about defining it, agreeing on it and recognizing and change because your whole book's about leading change during change, especially big change, it feels a little uncomfortable, which people might mistake as I'm not happy. Or a lot uncomfortable. So, so let's, let's, let's kind of maybe unpack a specific example. One of the things I talk about in the book it, 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 around getting people in the right seats on the bus, you know, a la good to great. Um, we look at skill and will. We look at the skill that the individual has to do the job, their competencies, their know-how, and we look at their will to tolerate change, to do the things we're talking about, be self-reflective, recognize their feelings, learn in action, right? And if an individual has very high skill and very high will, I'm going to call them a change agent. And they need to be in about a 70% fit to roll. They need to be learning in action. And the leadership style for working with them is to empower them not to micromanage them and allow them, you know, mastery, they can learn and they can have autonomy to kind of do their thing. But there are people who have amazing skill and do not tolerate change, do not feel comfortable or happy when things are a little bit loose or unpredictable. So I'm going to call those people highly valued. They need to be in about a 90% fit to roll. They need clear boundaries. They need priorities. They need to go at their work, feeling a sense of, uh, comfort with the certainty of what they're doing and and the knowledge that they have to do it. If if you put a highly valued person in a change agent role, they're going to be super unhappy because they're constantly going to be uncomfortable. If you put a change agent in a highly valued role, they're going to be bored and unhappy and you don't know, want to bail on you. So uh, you know, I. I there's a way to sort of think this through relative to what is my role in the organization? Am I in the right role? Am I getting what I need? Am I contributing? And is that balance right between, uh, you know, my, my ability to, you know, to take on things that, that might be unfamiliar versus wanting to be in a swim lane that, you know, makes me comfortable. Make sense? Well, and I guess, ironically, looking in the rearview mirror, maybe what the leaders at Gap were telling you was, Hey, you might have the will, but you don't have the skill for this position. And right now we're in a season where we need the skill over the will. We need both, but you don't have the skill. So therefore we're going to have to pick somebody else. Perfect. And you know what? That would have been like, that would have been helpful. <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying, right? If they had the leadership aptitude to be able to go and explain that. That's exactly right. And, and I might've disagreed with that, but still had to commit and go find my own job someplace else. Cause I couldn't change that dynamic. It's, you know, it's out of my control and I could be upset about it, but now I got to take action that takes care of what it is that I'm after. Exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, and I and I know some people out there. The great irony or paradox of of experience is you don't have any until you get some, right? <laughs> That's exactly. Listen, I had that with publishing. Nobody would take me on because I haven't written a book, you know. So I kind of I kind of hit that headwind head on. So let's jump into the next topic I wanted to cover. And I, we're not going to obviously get into everything in the book, but we're going to get into the high points. Um, I, my my brother in law is a dear friend of mine, and we have this running joke where. When it comes to whether it's customer service or, or relationships or different things in life, he, he says, Jeff, you know what I've figured out the key is? Just, I just lower my expectations of everyone around me. And then I, and then I really don't get irritated. And, I, and, you know, and that's not part of my DNA. He knows that. So I, I'm like, I, I'm a raise the expectations bar guy of myself and then everyone around me. So when it comes to setting clear expectations, when it comes to our perceptions of what expectations should be, relative to leading change, what's your philosophy on how to define expectations so that everyone clearly understands it, maybe even feels like they participated in the setting of them? What's your whole philosophy around expectations? I think the big idea is you have to align the outcomes that you want to achieve with the beliefs and values and biases of the collective organization. And you have to negotiate uh, that alignment in order to set appropriate expectations. So back to the DFS case, we had all of our programmers in offices, everybody managed them directly, you know, uh, it, they were all employees. When we had to change our workforce and move to a global services model, we offshored, you know, as I mentioned, a whole bunch of code. Well, that meant we we're dealing with a partner. They didn't work for us. We couldn't see them. They spoke in an accent, they look differently than, than we did. Um, I needed to get that expectation, that outcome delivered in order to hit my financial target and maintain a, a degree of service. There was not an option to do that with my internal staff and the cost structure that we had kind of around the world. But the belief system of the people in the organization were, I can't manage you unless I, you look like me, you sound like me, you're in my town zone, you're in my office. So I had to, um, uh, negotiate uh, uh, with get my HR support to help put people on a new path to to get the funding to fund a bubble to get my transition going offshore. But it was that 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 negotiation that allowed me to hit that expectation. If the business would have said, "No way in hell we're working with a third party. We're not going offshore. You must do it with the people in your organization." then I would have had to say, well, I can't achieve the financial objective that you're after. It is not, my perspective, it's not possible. You might find somebody who can, but then let's lower that bar at least for a period of time so that we can get some momentum and and and, and drive traction. And so uh, that's the most important thing is kind of understanding the nature of the people, the skills you have, the belief system of the organization, what they're willing to do and not do and then get that expectation set properly in the fullness of time so that you can meet or exceed it. Does that, that help? Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely does. Do you define outcomes and expectations? How do you define them differently? Because some people might merge them together and say, well, the this is the expectation. And they might be just talking about an outcome versus someone else might say, well, this is the outcome we're, we're pursuing. And here's the expectations we think it'll take to get to the outcome. How, how do you define the the two, are they different? Are they the same? In the, I think they're different. In the case we're talking about, and let's, they could be the same depending on, you know, the company or the people or what they believe. But in, my, in this case, the outcome was we needed to cut 50% of our expenses in 90 days. And we needed to maintain a level of productivity 
that kept our stores open and 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 working properly, right? So those outcomes were not negotiable. They were very clearly defined and measurable. The expectations were more around how much risk is there in us getting to that point and how much time will it take us to get to that point and what skill sets do we need to evolve to get there? Do we hire them immediately? Do we train our people? And so the expectations were around, we're going to get there, but is it, is the time frame acceptable? Is what we need to do with our workforce acceptable? Is the investment or lack of investment in tools acceptable? And these are the expectations that were sort of the the contract terms and conditions, if you will, to get to that outcome. And the change leader's role is to is to navigate all of the stakeholders and try to explain as clearly and concisely as possible what those expectations need to be. And to the point about happiness, you may not be happy, but that's what it's going to take to, to, to move us towards that, you know, that, that ultimate outcome. So that's how I would differentiate the two. Good, good. So here's how I just interpreted what you said. Tell me if I'm way off base here. So outcomes are, you know, here's the scoreboard. At the end of the day, we need to have done X. We're going to outshore this. The code's going here. Here's how we're going to look. This is the outcome. The, the expectations are, the variables that influence the outcome that everyone has to be aligned on knowing that here's the variables. Time is a variable. Money is a variable. People are variables. These are all variables. And as long as we're aligned on what those variables are from an expectation standpoint, we can keep pointing to the outcome that we desire. But as we go along this journey, if the outcome's looking farther and farther out (laughs) on the horizon, we have to look at the expectations of the variables. Were they met or not met? And then that's, that's, that's how I'm kind of interpreting what you're saying. Is that on track? I think so. And I would also say, as you're on that journey, you make assumptions when you start that, that turn out to be not true or less accurate than you thought. And you have to pivot, make adjustments as you go. That's one really important point. And the other, Gartner had a really good framework that I adapted and put in my book. And they talked about types of change, uh, kind of improvement changes that are really on the margin that don't require a tremendous amount of uh, lift, if you will. And those are going to be highly certain, but the value is relatively low. So if you got a million dollars in sales and you want to go to 1.1, you got to change a few things and you can get there without a lot of disruption. On the other hand, when uh, the goals are transformational, uh, you don't have history or experience to predict what's going to happen. You actually need maybe new know-how, right? There, uh, the certainty of getting there is much lower because there's way more things that you have to do to to get your organization prepared to deliver that that transformation. But the value could be from 1 million in sales to 5 million in sales. You know what I mean? A five-time improvement. So the challenge that we face when when you're in a change agent role and you're dealing with uh, a leader or a board or funders, they want certainty and value, and they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. And so the, the conversation around expectations is you can't have both, man. It's where do you want to draw that line and let's let's put together a program that, you know, that gets us to where we want to be. And I, I think that that's a, a really powerful thing to think through when you're, you know, sort of pitching uh, uh, change programs. If you're listening to this episode from my team, I want you to delete that last section. <laughs> I've, I've never done that as a leader here. Um, so 
you've got a lot and there's so many topics here. I do want to cover one other big topic here before we jump. By the way, for those who are listening, um, and when you get the book, it's chock full of tools as well, like visual tools that you can go to, which I love um, in the book as well. The, the, the big thing around, it's almost become cliche, so I want your take on it. Authenticity. And authenticity, and I'm going to merge a couple of concepts together here, authenticity and how it's directly um, reflective and impactful on, on purpose. So it's two big, two big words, two big concepts, right? They both almost come become cliched in leader in leadership today. Authenticity and purpose. What's your what's your take on those two? So I'm going to start with purpose, and I'm going to say purpose to me is sort of why I'm doing what I'm doing and how I fit in. And and I think it's really important for leaders to establish a purpose and for people to understand, you know, why the business exists, why the project exists, and how they um, they fit into into their their role. Uh, that is so, so important, you know, just for human beings to understand why we're doing what we're doing. Authenticity is, uh, for me, it's about being who you are. We all have strengths. We all have things that we're not so good at. And my philosophy is let's figure out what your strengths are and help you apply those strengths in, in leading uh, a journey that accomplishes uh, an objective. And so uh, I might be an introvert, somebody else might be an extrovert, but we can both be leaders, but we're going to do it in a different way. And if the introvert tries to be an extrovert and believes that there's only one way to lead, that is often um, a disingenuous. People don't buy into it. The leader feels uncomfortable and and the results often suffer as a as a result. I, I I believe that you don't have to be born a certain way to be a leader. You don't have to look a certain way. Uh, my research tells me that you don't have to be in a certain socioeconomic category. Leadership can be taught and it is a process. And um, I just believe that authenticity is about being you in that process and um, figuring out which things make the most sense to help you foster trust, get a team behind you and, and meet or exceed expectations. The only caveat that I might offer to authenticity is, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's being the best version of your true self. Because sometimes I hear leaders say, well, I'm just, I'm just being myself. I'm just being authentic. I'm like, well, yeah, but you're a jerk. <laughs> like you, you're really not helping your authentic self today is a train wreck. So yeah. what you call your authentic self. So it's like being the best version of your true self as it pertains to helping others. That's to me, the true mark of authenticity. Um, you can't make excuses, right? Well, I mean, so I, th this is a very interesting conversation. And what I would say to that, my experience is um, there are some people who are authentically jerks. But just know the impact, right? You just got to know. Exactly. And for me, and, and I tell people all the time, pick your boss first, then the brand, because it's your boss who is going to create opportunity for you, help you find your your leadership style and, and make your contribution. And th 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 there are jerks who can't be a best version of themselves. And then you have a choice. Do you want to work for them or not? But you have that choice. Uh, so, you know, I, yes, I would love for them to be the best version of themselves, maybe a little less jerky, but I've worked with some people where there's no hope whatsoever. And I just need to, sometimes we stay for a reason. I got to feed my family, need to finish this project, whatever the, the driver, but understanding I am doing this as a means to an end, not an end in itself, I will find a boss that suits me and will help me become, you know, uh, the best version of myself. And, 
you know, I think that there's hope in that. I still think it's, uh, I haven't looked at it. The last research Gallup does it. I think HBR does it. Different groups do the reasons people leave companies. It's the number one reason is still the boss, right? It's rarely the brand and it's rarely other things. So there's, you know, they're down the list, but it's almost always the number one reason is my boss. So if your authentic self is a jerk, you know, do some self-reflection because it has direct ripple effects on people in the organization. Absolutely. So let me rattle off here some rapid fire stuff and you just comment. We'll go quick on this in the book. So we talked about happiness already. We talked about expectations. We talked about authenticity. By the way, I'm rattling off. I want you guys that are listening. These are chapter by chapter what's in this book. So you get a flavor for what you're going to learn. And I, and I love that you, how you describe it as a field manual because there is so many very rich experiences that you've laid out in each chapter as well as tools to implement this stuff inside your organization. Uh, change requires change. 20 seconds, go. You, you can't change without doing something different. And so you can't, you can't stand still and change. So you got you to gotta let go of one trapeze and grab the other. One of my favorite quotes is, jump and the net will appear. Yeah, that's the, uh, that, the, yeah, that's the Indiana Jones effect that I like to call it, right? Remember the old Indiana Jones where he had to step out and there wasn't anything and then the rock appeared and he just had to keep stepping. Love it. Yeah. Beautiful. Change requires change. Okay, that's a Geico chapter. Everybody knows that. No, I'm kidding. I'm sure there's, the, there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Then we talked about the power of purpose and direction. We talked a little bit about purpose. Do you want to add anything to that with the purpose and direction chapter? I think that that model that, that I talk about in there has several elements. And, and when that gets completed, it becomes the first filter to decide are the things we're talking about the right things to do to get us to our outcome. There's always more things than we can do. And uh, we got to do the right things, not necessarily do doing things right. You know, Warren Bennis said, leaders do the right things. Managers do things right. Uh, you, you do the wrong things correctly, you're going to waste a lot of time. So purpose and direction helps you filter a, a, a portfolio of projects that are going to lead you to your ultimate uh, objective and outcomes. So direction, where we're going, purpose, why we're going there? Yep. That, okay. Love it. Uh, we talked about outcomes. Chapter six, outcomes are everything. We've kind, of, we've kind of spent some time on that. Chapter seven, possibilities spawn opportunities. Give us a little bit of your, uh, your flavor on that. This is the idea of uh, seeing opportunity and difficulty. You know, when things are challenging and feel uncomfortable, that is the biggest opportunity to learn and, and, and make, a, make a big difference. And embracing them as positive embracing the feelings as positive drivers to get us into gear to go learn and grow uh, is, is what I'm talking about there. Love it. Um, I went to a conference years and years ago down in Texas. Uh, Ed Young Jr. put it on. I think it was part of the C3 conference. And the theme, I'll never forget the theme, is turning, you know, turning what if into what is. I love it. That's it. Right? It was that idea. So I love that. Uh, chapter eight's about talent, right? So you get into talent, turns the opportunities into realities. Any uh, any wisdom there you want to tease the audience with? We talked a little bit about the skill will matrix, and I, I think that there are some very, very insightful things in there, both for the subordinate to tell the supervisor where they see themselves and the supervisor to confirm whether they're aligned or not. And it fosters conversations about getting people into the right seat on the bus. I think it's a really, really important chapter. Love it. Um, it's good. We is better than me. That gets back to the jerks, you know? I mean, uh, it is all about, I'm reading a book on awe right now, which is amazing and kind of the the experience of awe. And one of the things that makes us feel goosebumps and, and positivity is being part of something bigger than ourselves. 
being an individual surrounded by a collective of people who uh, in aggregate can do way more than any one person. And, you know, the the big egos um, tend to really slow progress down. The whole team knows it and it's a leader's job to make sure that, you know, the collective is pointed in the right direction. And um, I've just come to believe that we is the way to go. <laughs> it's not about me. And I, and I know that concept's out there, but it really is easier said than done. And I don't know who said the quote, but if you want to go somewhere fast, go alone. You want to go somewhere far, go together. Yep. That, that idea of you know, just growing brain trust here, I recognized as I've evolved the company, the early days of you know, me and, a, and, and one other person, and then now with a team and seeing how far we're able to grow, because you get a diversity of ideas, right? You get the, a diversity of experiences. You get a diversity of all the things you need to grow an organization. Um, then it comes down to the back to the purpose direct. Like all these things are so interchanged in leading in leading change. No, no, no question. The only the thing that I would add to that is that it has to be relational, not transactional. In order to get a team aligned, they got to feel that purpose. They have to understand each individual how they contribute. They got to be willing to work with other people, and that that takes interpersonal dynamics and building trust. It's not the transaction of. How much am I going to make? How am I going to be happy? And, you know, uh, my thing is fine. I mean, I work in tech, right? When the database guys tells me, I understand the stores can't order, my database is fine. My response is, it doesn't matter whether your database is fine. <laughs> the collective service is not working and we all need to get together to get that sorted out. You know, it's our process, not your job that we care about. High five, high five on your database. Now let's talk about. <laughs> exactly. Right, right, right. Um, now the last concept I'll have you comment on, and then we'll start to land the plane here is la the last chapter on start slow, finish strong. Give us, uh, give us a little commercial on that chapter. I think when you're getting into a new role, it's very, very important to listen to all of your stakeholders and understand why things are the way they are, whether they're good or bad. Um, Trader Joe's is a great example, 50-year-old company, amazing leadership team, credible brand, everything is was working. And so from a tech point of view, my mission was just understand all of that, then try to think about where were opportunities to make improvements and, you know, having understood, got people aligned, then we could move pretty quickly on the most important things that people were going to embrace and, um, you know, uh, get behind. So I, I just think so often we get into a new role and we want to establish ourselves. We want to say something smart. We want to do something so that people can see it. And I think tolerating the discomfort of being in learning mode is so important and it will allow you to go much faster rather than potentially make some assumptions that aren't, aren't, aren't accurate and, and some mistakes that could burn a relationship or, or get you stuck, uh, you know, beyond repair. Yeah. I think that's a Navy SEAL tenant, right? Go slow to go fast. Um, we've had a couple of those fights and that's what they're saying, right? It's, you know, do be methodical. And if you do it the right way, it'll speed you up in, in the change. Well, this is a time of, we've been involved. You know, if you think about the season that we're living through right now from, you know, post you know, the COVID, all, there's never been a better time to launch a book like this because it really did expose a lot of organizations and its ability to, to nimbly lead change when maybe the market conditions weren't ideal mm. uh, and they weren't able to predict. 
So the last thing I'll challenge the audience to do that you may just have listened to this episode and thought, well, I, I'm not a leader inside the organization, so this doesn't necessarily apply to me, the learnings. I, I would completely disagree. This is the type of book that whether you're a, an entry-level employee or you're the CEO, you can read a book like this and you can actually use the principles, the tenets, and the tools to lead up in the organization. How brilliant would it be if you're an entry-level person or someone who just graduated college and you got a job and you read this book and you're able to go to your boss and say, I've got some ideas on how we can help drive change in the organization. How much more valuable are you going to be to that organization? So don't just think that this book is just for leaders. This is for anybody inside the organization that wants to help the organization grow in leading change. So you got any final comments that you'd like to leave the audience with? Well, first of all, this was a really fun interview. Thank you so much for that. And I would just add to your last statement, and I would say we're all leaders. It's not about your title. It's about making a difference, working with other people, making a positive impact on your company, on your community, on the on the planet. And um, it, 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 it's what we're here to do. And uh, I hope that some of these, these things help. And um, I would be more than happy to engage with uh, any readers, uh, who are interested in having a conversation about you know what they're what they're reading and how they want to apply things and um it, it would be fun to keep the dialogue going jeff thank you so much man this was it made my day yeah it's our pleasure so tell people where we can learn more about how to get the book and how to be in touch with you uh you can be in touch with me at ronaldducklickman at gmail.com uh the book lead for a change is available on uh, on all platforms, including Amazon, and I will get you a link to the uh, publisher's landing page so that it's easy for people who want to buy a, a variety of formats to find to find uh, the book that they're looking for. So that link will already be in the show notes by the time you're hearing this. So just click on that link, go grab the book, and let's 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 cause some change pain for Dr. Ron. He gave us his personal email. So read the book and, and I want you to email him a question or a comment or tell him how great he is. Send him a testimonial to his own personal email. Uh, reach out to him, use it because it's not every day that a professor of his level, a leader at his level is willing to, to reach out and talk to the audience about what they're learning. So uh, Dr. Ron, this has been awesome. I've learned a lot. I feel like I've, you know, I've got to go do some change management inside my company now the rest of the day. I'm going to clear my schedule um, uh, from you. So thank you for being on. And we'll have you back again. I would love that, man. Thanks so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.